Welcome to Limitless, how to crush it in commercial real estate. The show that gets you inside access to how some of retail real estate's most successful leaders went from your average Joe Schmo to the CEO. I'm your host, Aaron Zucker. Hey everyone, before we get started, I wanted to take a quick second to thank the guys at CM for making this podcast happen. They've brought Limitless from an idea to making it a reality, and I can't thank them enough for support along the way. If you're looking to get going on your own content creation journey or need help with your marketing, I'd strongly encourage you to reach out to them at kazcm.com. One of my favorite parts about commercial real estate is that you can have an unconventional path to getting where we end up. Maria Tuliopoulos is a prime example of that. Her Greek immigrant parents gave her two choices in life for a career path, to become a doctor or become a lawyer. Of course, neither of which she did. She now runs all real estate strategy for Ulta Beauty, the leading makeup and cosmetic beauty retailer in the world with over some 1,100 locations. Her path involved hard work from the onset, waiting tables in her family's restaurant, and included other adverse points in her life, like dealing with gender bias in big meetings. After getting to know Maria through this episode, you'll understand very quickly why the adversity hardly slowed her down. And so let's go ahead and get right into her journey. Maria Tuliopoulos, SVP of Strategy at Ulta, amongst many of her major accomplishments in her career. Thank you so much for joining me on Limitless. How are you doing? Good. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no problem. It's, I know times are a little crazy right now. This recording is right in the height of the pandemic. And we certainly... I know with, with how much things have been changing by the day, it seems like I know that's been nuts for your role within the organization at Ulta. And so can't thank you enough for joining me. And we'll definitely get there. But I think everybody kind of wants to know how you got to where you are, obviously. So certainly young in your career, relatively speaking, and to accomplish as much as you have at such an early point, everybody's uh, sort of excited to hear your story. So thanks again for joining us. Let's just get right into it. Tell me, where are you from? How did you grow up? Your accent might give it away, but we'll let you tell us anyway. (laughs) The accent, which I do not have one, and I am vehemently opposed to the fact that you call me out on it. Born in Chicago, then moved to Darien daughter of immigrants. My dad came here in his teens in order to earn money, send it back to his family in Greece. My mom came here in her 20s in order to follow her older brother and try to fulfill the American dream. They met here, got married, and then had us, lived in Chicago, went to school in Chicago, and then did a small stint away in DC and realized Chicago is just where I had to be. Nobody else could tolerate my accent. (laughs) So just to be clear, you were the one who ran away to D.C. briefly. No, I did a small stint in D.C. as a White House intern. Which is awesome. That must have been an experience. Yeah, it was amazing. It was a phenomenal experience. But then I also realized that I really enjoyed and wanted to be home. And I was raised with the whole, it takes a village mentality. So if you've ever seen my big fret Greek wedding, that was me growing up. That was my household all of our cousins nearby, friends that we call family. And that's where I wanted to raise my children. So went away and realized I wanted to get back home and be part of that community and have my children one day be part of that community. Makes total sense. So you said your parents immigrated. Your dad was basically... didn't sound like you had much more than two nickels to rub together. What type of work did he do to to send back to Greece at first? Yeah, so he came... Yep. Came to the U.S., went to Oklahoma. He had family there. Went to Tulsa, Oklahoma. Worked in a restaurant as a busboy. Okay. Didn't know anybody. And 
made friends with all of the, the rest of the people that worked in the back of the kitchen. He is the epitome of, if you've ever read Grit by Angela Duckworth, he's grit, right? He had passion and he also had perseverance. And just no matter how many times he just hit a dead end, he had one goal, which was to provide for his family back home and then eventually make a life for himself here. Nice. He did that um, by eventually opening his own restaurant in Chicago. Nice. Does he still own the restaurant today? I have to ask. No, no, no. He sold it right before I had my firstborn, which is so disappointing because she didn't get to the experience, you know, kind of growing up in the restaurant business. You would have had her waiting tables at like four. I was, yeah, for sure. I mean, I waiting tables, serving alcohol way before I was of age to do so. You never um, tried it. So it doesn't matter, right? You never tried it. That's right. It. Yeah, no, no, never. Never snuck any, you know, in the back when we were cleaning up at night. Never. But, you know, learned how to do, right? Like, learn how to take cash before the register would tell you what the change was. So you had to do it in your head. So that's how I learned math. Learned how my social... So you know how to get to 100 really quickly. You know that 63 plus 37 is 100 like that. You got to be able to, to break 100 or break a dollar, right? So yeah, that was, for me, that's growing up. I did it all through junior high, high school. I would go help my dad out on the weekends during the summers. Then I would do that during college as well. So I would try to be thoughtful about taking my college classes. So I would leave a break during lunchtime so I could swing by the restaurant and help him out. I'm sorry for interrupting you, but you just hear all these stories about people going off to college so they can... And the only time people are allocating their schedules is so they can sleep into 11 or so they can take Fridays off. And here you were making sure that you had a long enough gap between your morning and your afternoon classes to go pick up a lunch shift. I think that there's, there's certainly some foreshadowing probably what happened later in your life as far as your work ethic taking you places. And it sounds like that was instilled from your family lineage too. There's no such thing as a successful restaurateur who doesn't work hard, right? No, absolutely. Was your mom in the business too? My mom was not, but she came here in her 20s, ended up working, you know, different jobs, worked for AT&T, retired as a manager from AT&T, which for, again, a woman at that time as an immigrant to be able to get a job and work her way up to manager role. I had an unbelievable role model in her watching her juggle helping me with my kids while she also had a career. And so she really was such a great role model to emulate as I kind of navigated my way through balancing home, motherhood, being a wife, and then also my career. Sure. And did you have brothers and sisters? A younger brother, so firstborn. So I've got all those firstborn issues, right? And hangups that most typical firstborns have. Like what? Like, that, you can't, so you like can't what? So, you know, I really believe birth order does play a role into people's personalities and how they approach things. And so firstborn always strove to make my parents happy, right? It was all about doing whatever that checklist was to make them feel like I was living out their American dream that they had. So coming home with the good grades, being like a multi-sport athlete, just doing whatever I could to make sure that they felt like whatever it was that they sacrificed, they were seeing you know the fruits of their labor through us. So you're, you're a competitive athlete. What, what sports did you play? So I played volleyball, basketball, and track, you know, through grade school, junior high, high school. And then that was it. But inherently, there's been a common theme on the show so far with the guests that we've had. Some played Chris Sands, for example, played professional tennis for some time. And yeah, there's been other Division One athletes that have come through. And I, I'm not saying that in order to be successful in commercial real estate, you had to grow up playing sports. But 
it seems like that there's oftentimes been a nice parallel with people who are competitive and can work well in a team environment succeeding in the long term there. So it's interesting that you said that. That's why I was asking. Do you feel yeah, like it's helped you in your so like- success? Oh, for sure. You know, I listened to your podcast with Chris Sands and talked about the restaurant business, right? And I think there are a lot of parallels between just that, being able to juggle schoolwork and something else, right? Right. Not just checking in and doing the bare minimum to get by, but being able to balance all of that and then learning early on what it is to, one, have a bad day, right? So whether it's you're playing sports and you just didn't show up that day or your team didn't do well, you lost. I'm not a big believer of everybody who participates gets a trophy. And I think it's important for kids to learn the lesson of today we didn't win, but this is where we can work on and this is what we need to focus on in order to do so next time, right? And also the importance of playing together as a team. I love team sports. I mean, I loved my individual you know, things I did for track, but team sports were the most enjoyable for me because I just love the fact that you work together and there was that social aspect as well. I think, and you also played the ultimate team sport in volleyball, I think. I've never, you know, the only volleyball I've played was a beer in hand during a sand beach party in college, but you watch the game and you see how much it's impossible to win in volleyball with one person or one star athlete, right? Like you have to have constant communication. You constantly have to be moving in the right directions at the same time. So To me, I'm thinking about your upbringing and the fact that you worked in a restaurant, which I'm a big believer that every kid should work in a restaurant at some point in their lives because you've learned the lesson of even when it's not your fault, it's your problem, right? If you're waiting the table and the cooks in the kitchen screw up the meal or it takes too long or whatever, the customer doesn't get up from the chair back when we used to eat in restaurants, of course. The customer doesn't get up from the chair, walk back into the kitchen and ask the cook what's going on. They yell and scream at the waiter. Or the waitress and the waitress has to sit there with a smile on their face and say, Yep, I totally understand where you're coming from. And when in their mind, they know it may or may not have been their fault per se. So I think between that, the fact, and, and I can relate to having immigrant lineage, my parents immigrated from Canada, and prior to that, a bigger accomplishment or, or feat, I guess, that my family lineage comes from was that my grandparents were Holocaust survivors and immigrated from Eastern Europe and then escaped Auschwitz to do so. So, like, I can totally relate to, even though I'm not the oldest, I can totally relate to wanting to live up to their expectations because think about what your family went through and my family and other immigrant families went through just to have basic roof and shelter and food for us. You got to run through that cracked door or take what you've been given and run with it. So there's a lot of characteristics that I've already heard about your upbringing that make total sense within your success today. So I've enjoyed hearing that. So it sounds like you stayed close to home for school. Right? Yep. Yeah. Stayed close for college. Then I went to law school, stayed close for that as well. So I went to Loyola University for undergrad and I had the, what I would call like the ultimate history channel pedigree. I was a major in English lit and minored in theology, classical civilization, and international studies. Right. Right. So, like, great conversationalist at a dinner party. But at that point, it was like, what are you going to do with that? And my parents honestly had kind of two options for me. It was like, you you know, we came here for our children to be either a doctor or a lawyer. And so I was like, okay, well, I guess I'll go for... I'm finding a lot of parallels between Greek people and Jewish people, by the way. Very similar. Very, very similar. There's actually a great PBS special that highlights different ethnicities. And there are a lot of similarities between Greek and Jews. So, and I'm involved in an organization, actually, and we'll get to that eventually. Um, but oh, we do a lot, a lot yeah, of work with the AJC, yeah. 
Oh, nice. I want to hear all about that at some point. So I was going to ask you if you're a good student. Clearly, you were. You don't get into Loyola with four grades like I had coming up. So again, which probably boils back down, you do want to disappoint your parents. So you go to Loyola, you get a major in something totally applicable for what you're going to do for the rest of your life. (laughs) For sure. Did you always know that you wanted to be a lawyer? Or Talk to me about that because most people would study like poli-sci or something remotely related to law, maybe. I knew that eventually I wanted to get one of those two very respected careers, right? That's always what my father especially held up as kind of, this is what you do. This is a success story, right? I don't... And it was very early on. And I think that's important sometimes for people who have their own businesses or entrepreneurs or have started a very successful business. My father very early on said, you will not get the restaurant. That's just not like you will not be in this business. You will not get the restaurant. So go find something else, and you can be a lawyer, or doctor. So I wanted, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So I did want to enjoy my undergrad degree, and I knew that writing and the ability to understand people was also a very integral part of becoming a lawyer. I knew I didn't want to do litigation. I knew I wanted to do more contractual, transactional work which also meant people work, right? Part of it is being able to document the deal, but the other part of it was being able to understand where each side's coming from. So whether you're trying to solve a problem or whether you're trying to get to a mutual agreement, you still have to understand what's kind of making each side tick. So I really enjoyed taking that part of my undergrad studies and being able to incorporate it through my law degree studies as well. But yeah, not not necessarily conventional, but I don't think anything I've done quite yet has been conventional. That's okay. Look, you don't get on this major worldwide hit of a podcast by being conventional, right? That's right. So I know this was really the end game in your whole career. It was the one day be it. Yes. I know. Yeah. I kind of feel like I now peaked and I don't really know where it's going to go from here. Yeah. And if I see an announcement that you've retired next week, then uh, I'll know why. I totally get Take it. Take full credit. So you knew going into school that because your dad gave you a wide plethora of choices between A and B of doctor and lawyer... You knew that you wanted to be an attorney pretty quickly because you don't study that stuff to become a doctor. At least they wouldn't take you yep. to medical school. From what I know, not that I had any business even applying to medical school. but So you knew going into your freshman year or whatever, and you studied for that and you, and you wanted to become a lawyer. Where did you end up going to law school? So I went to John Marshall for my law degree. And uh-huh. then I started a joint program at the time, which was to get my master's of law in IT privacy. So graduated with my law degree, started working as an attorney, had a few classes left to finish my LLM in IT privacy. So after getting married, giving birth a couple of times, I waddled... Actually, I had my first. I waddled my way into a few more classes, pregnant with my second, and then graduated with my LLM. Got it. Wow. That's impressive. That's a lot. <laughs> taking on... Uh, it was a lot, for sure. Yeah. Taking on pregnancy is tough. Taking on pregnancy when you already have one is really tough. And then taking on pregnancy while you have one plus being in law school, I can't imagine is something that's for normal sane people to do. But obviously, as somebody once told me, it's uh, if you want something to get done, ask the busiest person to do it. That's right. I do believe that is a really great statement and pretty accurate, right? I mean, I did have a lot on my plate, but... I knew I only had a few classes left to finish this master's degree. I wanted to make sure for my daughters, I set the example that nothing is too difficult to accomplish if you just set your mind to it and you make the time to do it. And so 
it was a lot to juggle. And my family, again, the village came in and helped just like when I was growing up. And so my husband, my in-laws, my parents, you know, everybody pitched in and got it done. And yeah. Ran a bum on the street, maybe babysat too for a little bit. That's right. That's right. That's amazing. That's awesome. So when you were in law school, when did you figure out what type of law you wanted to do? I know you said you were pretty interested in contractual law. Like, did you come to that conclusion while you were in law school? Or was that something I, that you knew pretty early going yeah. while you were undergrad? So Allie McBeal, I remember, was pretty popular on TV at the time. And you're too young for that. But, you know, she's a little right? And I remember watching that and thinking, maybe I could do that. But as soon as I got a taste of you know, more of the, even an undergraduate, some of the business law classes and really thinking about, do you want a career where a lot of it is just adversarial or do I want a career where it's mostly just trying to get the parties to reach an agreement and move towards something, right? So that's really what I I wanted to focus on. I loved the negotiations aspect of it. I love the drafting part of it, which is for everybody. Yeah, I love the drafting. So I did more and more I did it, the more I realized that I wanted to be a transactional attorney. Okay. So what was your first job out of law school? So my first job out of law school was with Holland and Knight. It used to be McBride Baker Coles. They went out and were acquired by Holland and Knight. And so when I first took that job on, it was half real estate and I'd be able to do some IT corporate because that was my background, right? I really wanted to use the IT background. But again, at the time, I didn't realize Y2K would be a bust. And so there wasn't as much IT. Like everyone's computer didn't blow up when it turned to 2000. So that work was kind of slowing down a little bit. And so I was doing more and more real estate. And the more I did... I one enjoyed working with the partners, the real estate partners and that practice group. And I enjoyed working with those clients. I was very fortunate to have amazing clients very early on. Talk to me um, about your client but Rolodex. Was that like retailers? I'm yeah. So some of the clients, we had large institutional, like the Preets of the world. And then we also had some of the developers like Opus and Red Development as clients very early on, right? And this is in the heyday of a lot of work that they were doing. And what was great about them specifically as clients is their legal team were really partners in the work, right? So as we were getting through a transaction for an acquisition of development or getting through the leases, our input and our ability to be able to really partner with the business was integral in being able to get past the finish line on many of those deals. And so having that experience really got me interested more into you know the business side of it and not just being an outside third-party provider. Sure. And so how long were you in that role? When, at what point within that role did you pivot exclusively to real estate? So I would say within the first couple of years, it was clear that I was going to do real estate Primarily, right? I would still do some IT things here and there, and it was mostly contractual or for real estate clients too. But you know, it was pretty early on. I started focusing 100% of my time real estate, and I was with that same practice group for almost eight years until I moved in-house and joined Inland Western, which eventually became Retail Properties of America. Got it. So that's how you jumped in with RPAI was through a legal. Opportunity. 
Yeah. So I was at the time struggling with what does my career look like at a firm? And back then, it was also difficult to be a working mom and had some difficult conversations with some of the attorneys who viewed my maternity leave as almost stepping away from the practice. So I would have needed to contribute more time to catch up to where like my male equivalent would be. And that was a hard conversation to have. But that was very much what was also taking place during that time. And I realized that I, at the time, thought, I don't want to chase just a title. I'm not interested in chasing titles. I want to be able to be in an environment where I really want to be able to contribute. And so the opportunity presented itself to go to Inland Western as Associate General Counsel. And so I went in through that career path thinking, you know, eventually General Counsel was where I wanted to be. And then we ended up going public. But as part of that, with about a year and a half to almost two years in, the CEO, now CEO of RPI had approached me and asked me if I wanted to switch to the business side and take over leasing. So I said, sure. I had that conversation before I gave birth to my third and then came back from maternity leave, you know, two and a half months later and took over... (laughs) <laughs> took over the leasing. So yeah. So they obviously thought quite a bit of you because you never had to go through like someone like myself who came up and grew, you know, cut their teeth as like a regular leasing agent. They're just like, yep, Maria's unbelievable. She obviously understands how to put a deal together. Let's throw her feet directly into the fire and just have her run the leasing team. Is that, am I understanding that correctly? Yes. And like, was that the wow. smartest decision? Who knows? I would say it was a pretty aggressive change in terms of the team that I had to manage. Because again, I had to prove myself to them. I had to prove myself that I, despite the fact that I didn't do it like you just said, right? I didn't come up that way. Like most of them had. Sure. Talk to me about that because there had to have been some animosity for some of the leasing reps out there who were thinking, who is this crazy lady who thinks she is helicoptering in from legal thinking she's going to tell us how to do a deal? I mean, that's right. That had to have happened. How did you navigate those waters? I navigated it by just focusing on the people, right? I knew that there was no way I could prove to them that I had the same background and earn my way the same way they had earned their way. And the important thing was they still were valued in their position. So even though I came in overseeing them, my goal and what I emphasized the entire time was my role is to remove obstacles from you guys so you can do your job, right? The importance of that team and the boots on the ground, I could never do from corporate. And so it was really focusing on creating those relationships, making sure I understood what the teams needed in order for them to be successful, and then what it was that I brought to the table that I could make sure I was focusing on in order to ensure that they would be successful in their role. So it was less about me trying to prove myself and get in there and elbow my way and try to do a deal. I was very much a, you do what you need to do because you've been doing it all along and that's why you're here. That's why you're successful already. right? I don't need to come in and change what you're doing. I just want to enhance it and I want to be able to allow you to have all the tools to make you successful. And- I love that answer. and I love that attitude. And that team approach and that people mentality continues to pay off for you in full. So... That's incredible. Now, I want to set the table before I ask this next question. 
RPAI is a large shopping center owner with how many hundreds of properties at this point? Both when you were working there and today, roughly. I don't know what they have today, but a serious... Yeah, I mean, the portfolio has shrunk, but it was a few hundred at the time when I joined them. Right. But like strong, well-located, outdoor, super regional shopping centers throughout the country. Now, I normally would ask this question about your first job coming out of school, but because this one's more really being in the core of retail real estate, and I think the story may be better. I don't know. I'm just speculating. You have to have an embarrassing story about how you helicoptered in from legal into leasing. There's got to be one really good embarrassing story. And what I love about you too is how like you're so easygoing and wouldn't be afraid to share it. So I'm going to give you the floor to give us at least one good embarrassing story. Either It could be from the law job, as long as it's real estate related. Oh, geez. So as you can imagine, right, there are quite not as many females as there are males yet. Yeah. And I say that because I look at kind of the next generation of diversity amongst that team and I'm very excited about it. But at the time, I was still new to my role. So I was a little overzealous and eager to please, right? Kind of still a little wet behind the ear. Oldest war mentality still. I got that. Right, right. Whatever you like. So... We were in a big meeting with a JV partner and the CEO is standing there and I walk in about to go take my seat and he just turns and he's like, Hey, you know, can you grab me a coffee and whatever? And I'm like, sure, I'll go get your coffee. <laughs> and I go grab it, bring it back, give it to him. And then we all sit down for the meeting and my counterpart is sitting across from me and he's dressed to the nines, great Rolex on, right? And we're all doing our introductions. We get to him, the CEO's talking him up and you know he does his introduction. And then we kind of come over to me and that other CEO stops the conversation and goes, has anyone ever told you you have great hair? <laughs> and I just, at that point was like completely blank and didn't really know like how to respond, what to say. So then I think I just kind of laughed and flipped my hair and said, oh, thanks. And then tried to get through an introduction. But it was kind of that first time where I realized like, I'm going to have to really prove myself, right? Whether it's being a female or because I didn't come up the traditional way, I knew that I would have to continuously do that. And it's okay. I am okay with it. It doesn't mean that everybody's comfortable with that, but I'm okay with being put in that position and it it got me comfortable, right? It was uncomfortable, but I think there are so many great lessons in being uncomfortable that you can take and then apply in order for you to get comfortable the next time. I love the saying, you got to get comfortable being uncomfortable. But And and the, the root of the question was to have an embarrassing story. And it sounds like it wasn't really as much embarrassing for you as it was for that guy. That said... I think a lot of, as it specifically relates to women coming up in our business, have, even if it's not malicious, it still can come across as hurdles. I use that word with quotations, like what you experience. What suggestions or advice do you have for particularly women in the business coming up who are asked to get a coffee because and I guess this guy, I'm, I'm making an assumption, probably thought you were an admin or a secretary as opposed to running the entire leasing platform in RPAI. How do you recommend they handle that? Because exploding and punching the guy in the face isn't really an appropriate way to handle it. But at the same time, 
I imagine anybody who's successful, regardless of gender, race, or what have you, is a competitive person and is going to say like, no, like, piss off. Like, fuck you. Like, I'm going to get even with this guy and let him know who I am. So what do you recommend? Because you've dealt with it. Clearly, I'm sure that wasn't the only time. I mean, what do you recommend? It's tough. I've been asked that before. And I've been asked that by females who've come to me for mentoring. Yeah. And it's a slippery slope because you have to do, you have to be authentic and you have to do what's right for you. Right. And so I would say one, just be who you are. And if you need to say, no, I will not do that for you, then that is what you need to say in order to make sure that you are being authentic and that you feel you have not compromised who you are. On the flip side, I grew up in the restaurant business. So anybody asking me to get them a coffee does not phase me really that much, you know? So right. I will happily oblige. And then I also take comfort and pride and reassurance in being able to just sit down at the table and know that I'm fine getting the coffee for you, but I'm also here at the meeting and am more than okay and comfortable being your counterpart or your contemporary. So Whatever it is that you need to do to make sure that you feel, again, comfortable in that situation, that's what you need to do in order to never compromise. Never compromise. That's the most important thing. Your ethics, your beliefs, your values in that type of situation. And then second, I would say seek mentors. And that can be men or women, right? Because I've had some phenomenal men mentors who have really helped me navigate And I have had some phenomenal women, but some not so great women either, right? Where they, I think, based on what they had gone through at the time, felt like it was more of a, I went through this and this is how I kind of gained that strength and the grit to move on. And you should go through it as well. A little Mm -hmm. bit of a hazing. And that wasn't for me necessarily, but I just think that you need to gravitate towards people that you feel are aligned with how you want to be seen and how you want to emulate that type of person that you're around. And just surround yourself with those individuals. There's a lot to learn from being around great talent and being around people who you feel just don't ever compromise their integrity in order to get the deal done, in order to get their point across, etc. Great advice. I want to come back to the mentor thing. And we're going to get there because that's a big point on my scribbled notes down here. That said, I want to get back. I mean, this is go on for a long time because we went from embarrassing stories to you know women being treated equally all in the same sidebar. So, which I know for a fact our listeners are gonna love. So I appreciate that. But I do want to get back in your career path. So you're at RPAI, you're running the leasing team, things are going well. This is 2000. When, what, what is this? 2004 ish? Five? Am I off base? Yeah. So let's see, I took over the leasing position in 2010. And then prior to that, I was in a associate general counsel role. So right in the height of the recession. Yeah, yeah. Talk to me about that. Talk, talk to me about the role. How's it? it was... A lot of it, again, was just being able to take what I knew about the lease, the living, breathing document, which I think is so important and so underappreciated when it comes time to thinking about how to get a deal done and how to get across the finish line and what matters and what doesn't really matter in those lease negotiations. And then use how that lease document 
continues to have a life beyond just the execution. And so really focusing on that and looking at leasing as not just, I need to get a deal penned and signed, but I need to get a good deal signed and I need to make sure I am vested in that process from start to finish, right? I'm invested in the, the life cycle of that retailer. And so really creating that kind of partnership. And you know, portfolio reviews at the time were integral, right? So we really had kicked off a very robust portfolio review process and approach where we really got to know our retailers outside of a deal-specific issue. When did that portfolio review program get implemented? It was going on for a few years, but we really kind of kicked it up a notch to really focus on not just having those conversations, but really taking action items. We hired a person who was specifically accountable for portfolio reviews and making sure that we captured everything and we were really looking at it from a specific deal all the way up to the portfolio, as well as the health of each of those retailers. And so it evolved over time and it had started for sure prior to me getting there. But a big focus was really thinking of it as a the entire life cycle of a, a tenant, not just sure. procuring the tenant. Sure. I didn't hint an inkling that you might have had a lot to do with that. That's why I asked. So 2010, you get thrown into the fire right in the middle of the recession. You yep. guys are making deals, however, with whoever you can that are still good deals, of course. And you were in this role for how long, roughly? So about eight years. So started as a VP of leasing and then became the SVP of leasing and then leasing and tenant coordination, et cetera, kind of by the end. And then about two years ago is when I was approached by Ulta Beauty. Yeah. yeah. Now you have to keep telling this part of the story. Yeah. Now I'll, now I'll keep telling that story. Yeah. So that's another thing that I think is just really important, at least for how I want to be perceived and how I manage my business and how I manage my relationships. Having transparency and those relationships is important, right? But also integrity and how you interact with whether it's the first year leasing agent or the SVP or C-suite. I think it's very important to make sure that you treat everybody with the same level of respect. And I had a very difficult conversation, I remember, with my now boss about just timing of deals, right? I called him up and I was like, listen, we've got an issue. We've got to get some of these things signed or else we're going to have to revisit. I just was very transparent. And that conversation later I learned was what made him think, hey, I, I might want to have a follow-up conversation with her about actually you know, considering joining our team. Oh, so you were at RPAI having a difficult conversation. Right. And you had made this person at Ulta, him or her, so emotionally triggered that they decided, you know what, I think I ought to hire Maria. Is that basically what happened? Well, it's basically he sought me out. I learned obviously all this later. He sought me out at a conference and we had a couple conversations. I pulled him aside. I remember he said he had just moved to Naperville, which was where my current boss was at, and it made the introduction for them. Naperville, for those who don't know, is a western suburb of Chicago. That's right. That's right. How would you not know Naperville? So, (laughs) Maria, you know, I know you well enough to say this to you, and I'm gonna give you some breaking news. But the Chicago land thing is not its own country. Like it isn't. <laughs> really disappointing to learn. You're not gonna believe this. There's people outside Illinois listening to this. So 
I'm just kidding. Really? I'm That's fascinating. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess so for those who don't know or aren't in the know like the rest of us, Naperville's is a suburb. <laughs> no, you're fine. I just wanted to make sure that everybody had contact. Yeah. I know. I need a reality check every now and then. But yeah, so, you know, made the introduction and just just was focusing on the social aspect, right? And the importance of those personal connections. And then, you know, after that, you kind of said, okay, I'd, I would love to talk to you about a position. I haven't quite even written the job description yet. So we talked and wrote it together. And hang on, hang on, hang on. Yeah. You wrote your job description with your boss. Well, I mean, there were some blanks to be filled in about what is it that I can contribute and bring to the table to make sure that became part of what my core responsibilities were. I have to ask because everybody here is like, that's listening to this is totally motivated to make as much money as humanly possible. Was compensation even part of those discussions within the job role or was it like figure out the role first and we'll figure out the pay later? Like, how did that go? Yeah, you know, I didn't want to go backwards. But then on the flip side, I said, well, maybe it's backwards, not so bad. Like I started having all these conversations in my head because what I found out having these conversations with David Krieger is that he really embodied the culture at Ulta Beauty. And I was so drawn to that. I was so drawn to this idea of true collaboration, right? And that's, I mean, that is not at all anything to say about where I I came from because I still have many dear friends at RPI and I loved my time there. But there was just something really like lightning in a bottle at Ulta Beauty and top down, right? From the C-suite all the way down this, this sense of culture and putting associates first and putting the guests first is such an important part of our, you know, woven into the fabric of who we are and having those conversations and seeing that that's how my soon-to-be boss was and he, he truly believed it and also portrayed that. I was just really drawn in. So I took a title change. And I, again, that's where for me personally, it was not a ti- I wasn't a title chaser. And that's what I had given up moving from the law firm to go in-house because I didn't feel like I needed that in order to make me feel like I achieved something, right? So I had gotten the SVP title. It was wonderful. But then I ended up taking a VP title at Ulta Beauty. But a lot of it was one, the type of work I would be doing. And two, who I would be doing it with. And there's... For me at the time, I had known Ulta Beauty as a tenant that we did business with. And I held them in very high regards. And I just knew that I... Out of all of the retailers, I was very lucky to be joining one that a retailer that had that type of culture. And it shows, I, I mean, it shows they care about the customer. Walk into one of those places. I know a ton of listeners are. It's our job to be in the business and know what retailers are doing. And I'm sure the vast majority of the women listening to this are. Yeah, I love Ulta. I know it. It's bright. It's beautiful. But just in case you haven't ever walked into an Ulta, you don't have them yet in your market or whatever. Marina is not joking. When she, you're not joking when you say, "Hey, we put the customer first. I mean, that place feels so inviting. I mean, it made me want to uh, check out the mascara line, even though that's not necessarily right. something I use. So yes. I totally believe everything that you're saying. You've done a great job of building up this hype of what your job actually is at Ulta, and we still haven't had a chance to hear about that. So what did you guys end up agreeing to? What, what ended up being your role? It's a little bit of 
a little jack of all trades, right? So I touch a lot of different things and I will get to the job description, but I do think it's important to, when I say jack of all trades, I feel like that's something that someone eventually can get to, but when you're starting out, it's important to master one, right? Great advice. So Great. I really feel like you should master one skill set and be the go-to person. So whether it's, I am awesome at canvassing, I am phenomenal at writing an LOI, right? Whatever it is, hone your skill and be the go-to person. And you will continue to learn additional skill sets. You don't have to master every single one of them, right? You will just continue to add to your tool belt. But be the go-to person for one of those because you will continue throughout your career to be the go-to person for that one thing, right? So I totally agree. My background, not that this is about me at all, but my background was exclusively in retail leasing on the ownership side throughout my entire career. And now that I have my own little shindig with Zig, that rhyme totally not intended, by the way. That sounded ridiculous, but... I've gotten exposure to other components of the business. But when people, when investment sales brokers call me, they know, hey, if this is leasable, I'm going to call Aaron and see what he thinks. And I totally agree with that advice. Just know that I'm a cheerleader of everything you just said there. So so anyway. So yeah. So now I've got a job description of a jack of all trades, right? So I have a team that does market research and a lot of the demographic analyses as well as take... We have obviously a lot of rich information with loyalty member data that we also use in assessing sites, understanding from a portfolio standpoint, do we want to be there long-term? Is our total portfolio store count look like? So we spend a lot of time working with the deal makers in order to think of overall portfolio strategy. So that's one component. I have another team that does a lot of the administration work. So collecting tenant allowance, making sure our construction contracts are all tidied up and we are moving forward on our plan in order to hit the number of stores that we've announced for store openings that year. And then we also do, I would say, like light lease administration. So not necessarily the financial aspect with respect to actual like payment or rent, but more of the administration of the lease clauses like co-tenancy, exclusives, use restrictions. But are you even qualified to do that? I mean, you know, I'm joking, by the way. Right, right. Administering waivers, which is everybody's favorite topic. Legal background probably makes you overwhelmingly qualified to do so. For sure, right? I have definitely multiple conversations in my own head about whether we can or can't do something. I've got, you know, the business side saying, yeah, let's go. And then my legal side saying, well, like these are the, you know, things we need to think about. Sometimes I inadvertently actually verbalize that, which I have to be careful not to do. So the wrong people, right? Like you're telling the wrong me. people, right? Like sometimes I'm like, oh, that should have been my inner voice. But yeah, so I'll have those conversations. And then, you know, it's great because. A lot of what we do, what you do, I do is risk allocation. And um, having that legal background is a, for me at least, provides me the ability to get through that risk assessment pretty quickly because I usually am able to think about all of the kind of what can go wrong, likelihood of success, failure on those, and then be able to allocate risk accordingly. So people like you fascinate me, and I'll use a parallel. I've always been fascinated by people like my sister, who's incredibly book smart, right? Like she's an MIT undergrad and PhD, like absurdly smart. But when I meet people like her who can also carry on a conversation and have high levels of emotional intelligence and like can interact socially, I'm always fascinated because I'm like, how do you 
have both sides of your brain working like that? And how are you able to perform at a high level in both? Like, I'm just not. Like, that's just not me. I'm only, I'm an okay schmoozer and an even worse student or brainiac, if you will. People like yourself amaze me because you've got the conservative, risk adverse mentality of a legal background, somebody in law, vis a vis somebody who sees strategy, growth. What do we do to optimize customer experience, team member experience, and thus financial profitability? You don't do that by being scared in the corner. So, like the fact that you have the talent and skill set to be able to manage both of those things just, just fascinates me. And it sounds like you struggle with it at times when you say something to the wrong person. But do you, I mean, do you have like the little like fictitious devil on one side of your shoulder and like the and like the angel on the other side saying like do that deal or yeah? Because obviously, just like anything else, it's a huge component of your job is weighing out. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but the basic premise of your job is weighing out risk for the company for the organization versus achieving goals that are tied to growth, right? Right. Right. And, and yes. So yes, I do have those conversations. Yes, I sometimes inadvertently say them out loud. But again, I wouldn't trade my background for anything. And it's also the people that I was around early on. So I was lucky, very fortunate to work with a group of attorneys early on, where because of the great client relationship that our group had, they gave them a lot of autonomy to be able to not just think about the risk from a legal perspective, but to also suggest resolutions, right? And suggest next course of action and not just say, well, here's your option that now you can choose, right? Really think about, okay, I'm going to recommend this option for them and I'm going to have to sell it in a sense that I have to tell them that this is why I think this is the most successful or best course of action. And so early on, I was able to see that from my legal and a business sense and the real estate world. But even before that, I watched my dad manage the restaurant and I watched my mom manage teams from home when she worked from home a day or two. And I just was so fortunate to see two people who had to make it work. They didn't have an option, right? They couldn't just kind of take the easy road and not get out of their comfort zone and get comfortable with being uncomfortable because my mom had a language barrier. So you think my accent's bad. Imagine my mom's Greek Chicago accent, which was (laughs) really difficult to understand, right? Managing teams and and a lot of our teams sometimes were remote too or dealing with clients on the phone and being able to not just do the actual financial work, but to also be able to have those social skills. And then again, watching my dad work, not only his the people that his employees that were in the restaurant, um, but then his customers and dealing with a customer that was construction worker and the next guy was a judge. But at the end of the day, they were all treated equally and they were all treated fairly. And it goes back to your point of the guest is they may not necessarily be right, but they have a right to be heard. So That for me was, yeah, I mean, I have to balance both of those. I have the opportunity to balance both of those. But at a very young age, again, I was forced to sit there and take cash and I'd have to do cash in my head while the line's building and everybody's got to clock in and punch their clock at one o'clock. So they got to get out of the restaurant to do that. And so how do you handle the social pressures and the, the managing aspect in addition to actually doing the substantive work? And so I do think those are skills that you can learn very early on 
by taking on those types of jobs, jobs that really force you to handle all of that. And again, they're not the easiest jobs, right? Because you could just sit back, punch the clock. And if you're comfortable just being a social person canvassing, you can do that. You can log your calls all day, but is it going to get you to the next level, right? Is it going to really push you to the next level? You can be an analyst and you can crunch numbers all day, but is that really going to get you to the next level? And there's nothing wrong with staying in those positions. There's nothing wrong with being and saying, this is where I want to be. I just want to be here. But if you are asking, what is it that's going to take me to the next level? Well, then it's going to have to be pushing yourself very early on and learning that it's about, again, I go back to perseverance and having these goals and having long-term goals for yourself and getting comfortable with the fact that there will be missteps along the way and you will have to fall. But the best lessons you learn are in those falls and in your mistakes. And the losses, incredible words about self-awareness, being uncomfortable and becoming comfortable being uncomfortable. Amazing. And I know you talked about this earlier, part of the success that you've had in this wide span of different opportunities that you've had throughout your career stems from mentorship. So I do want to ask you about your mentors now. Who are they? Clearly, they've done a lot for you. We've gotten to hear some of that. But who are some of those people and what were the biggest lessons you took away from them? I've had a few along the way and I have been so lucky. So early on, my parents, first and foremost, right? I mean, I again, I watched both my parents come here from... My mom lived for a short time in horse stables with her family. She was quarantined because she had rheumatic fever and sent off alone without her family for a little bit. And then she came here in her 20s and didn't have a winter coat, didn't have a winter boots, and somehow was able to... In Chicago? Chicago, yeah. yeah. very fun. Right, from Greece, I know. I I always ask them, like, why did you pick the coldest city, (laughs) the windiest city coming from Greece? And then my dad, who again, came here, and he's somebody who was extremely intelligent, was like top of his class when he was in school in Greece and came here in his teens and forced to work to help support his family. But both of them, in spite of their circumstances, never had a woe is me, right? Never. They took pride in those challenges. They took pride in the obstacles that they overcame. And it was never a woe is me. It was like, these are the experiences that have really contributed to who I am and have contributed to who you are. Yeah. So who are you to complain about, you know, it's raining outside and these these are people who've lived in Chicago with no winter coat. Right. Same thing with your grandparents. It's like, at some point, those are the experiences that truly create you as a person. And you can either woe is me it till the end of time, or you can say, I am fortunate to have been in that position where I've been able to learn something or I've been able to gain something. And in spite of that, look at where I am. And there's like this silent confidence that comes from that as well. And so again, watching them navigate their way through and and do whatever they could for us without knowing all the how to work the system, all everything about networking and all those connections. But very early on, I also saw that my dad... Although he didn't understand like networking from a what can you do to help this person get in here or open the door here, he was doing it for others. So he wasn't necessarily doing it for himself, but he was doing it for others inadvertently because he was like a broker, a social broker, right? He knew all the various people in the city and could connect people in different ways. And I watched him do that 
And I just found that fascinating and how many people respected him and knew him, but they were from all different walks of life. And then I was very fortunate in grade school. One of my mentors was my social studies teacher who oh, wow. our, our first classes, he made us all stand up in class and learn how to shake each other's hands. Oh. And he would, we'd shake hands. And then if you didn't do it correctly, sent you to the back of the line, made you come back up and you didn't sit down. So you did it right. And I just remember learning so much about becoming more just self-aware about the world as a whole and what was taking place and how fortunate we were in the position that we were in as these kids in a suburb of Darien, which everybody apparently doesn't know where Darien is. (laughs) Surprising. And I stayed close with him all through high school, college, and would check in periodically. And fortunately, before he passed away, I got to introduce him to my husband and show him pictures of my kids. So, you know, those are the experiences that like lasted a lifetime, but they were small lessons along the way. I had a phenomenal mentor and an attorney I worked with, Jim Marshall, who was just so good at balancing both the social interaction with clients as well as just a great drafter. Based on your skill set and your personality, I'm sure you admired tremendously. Yeah, gosh, it was, and he learned from Al Daspin, who was the same way. And I just remember first getting these drafts back, and it looked like somebody bled on it. Right? It was so heavily marked up in red pen, and my I wanted to make it better the next time. I want to make it better the next time. Right to the point where I'd give it back to them, and they'd still need to comment something, but I knew it was just because they didn't want to say it. It was good, right? They still wanted to push and, and help me continue to grow. And then I look at in-house, the old general counsel of Inland Western, Dennis Holland. Like I talked to him a lot about making the change to the business side because I was working for him and I was about to go work, you know, talk and be the client now. Yeah, talk about someone who's leading and not managing, right? Like wants what's best for you. In, in yeah, school. absolutely. From a selfish perspective, he could have been like, nope, I think you know, you should stay and but he encouraged me and he was like, you need to, one, it's not for everybody. And if it's not for you, you will have a place. So at the very least, know that you can go try this and you have a safety net. And that meant the world because that was my identity was being an attorney, right? From young, it was kind of the direction my parents wanted me to go in. But also that's what my career had been up until then was, was that. So to lose that title was difficult at first. And I struggled with it a little bit, but he was phenomenal in helping me make that transition. And then I had such great mentors after that. I mean, Angela Amon, who's the CFO of Bricksmore now, she was our CFO for a time. She, again, is somebody who really made me want to be better, right? She made me want to be better and do better and challenged me in a way that made me deliver a better product, a better version of myself. I was fortunate to have a few of those along the way. There's some great talent that's passed through those RPI doors. And Mike Fitzmorris is a CFO at RBT now. He fear went to kite. Like there's just so many great individuals that I had the opportunity to work with. And then my boss Shane Garrison who's still there and just very much in awe of the talent that I got to experience and to work alongside of and really took the opportunity to view each of those people as somebody that I could learn from and somebody that I could take different parts of to kind of create 
who I wanted to be known as, as both a leader in the industry, as well as a mentor for others in the future. Did you know that the role that you're in today is what you wanted eventually? I mean... Never. Certainly not when you were trying to get into law. So this is all... You're just kind of flying by the seat of your pants here and whatever the next best thing is that seems exciting and challenging to you is something that you'll continue to embrace or... Yeah, I'm very much... When I look at long-term goals, again, I think it's less about creating this, I want to be... CEO or I want to be COO, right? And I want to do it at this place and um, and I want to make X amount. I look at my kind of long-term goals as I want to be respected in the industry for what I've done and what my career has been along the way. But I personally also want to feel fulfilled in my ability to lead teams and I think it's important from a leadership standpoint. It's not about how big your teams are. It's not about how much recognition you get. It's really about, did you impact individuals' lives? Were you able to create future leaders who could contribute? And did you watch people grow under your leadership? And that in and of itself is so rewarding. And that was for me, you know, as I continue to refine my long-term goals, something that has become more and more important. My what I would say rest of the career and from a where do I want to be tomorrow? Who knows? Who knows what that title looks like? Right? I learned that you can't necessarily think about I need to fill X role, but what I want to do is I want to contribute and have a seat at the table and be able to effectuate strategy, bring about change, be able to be part of the conversations with respect to you know, how we go about on the retailer side and, and working with the retailer now, how do we go about managing our portfolio and what, how do we view our portfolio long-term? It's an interesting perspective because you have, this, you have yourself who's so successful and yet you're not using quantitative metrics because that's not what makes you happy. What makes you happy is exactly what you just described, which is building the team and and executing a long-term vision. And I think that there's just so much value that you've provided on this particular show that's been unique compared to some of the other guests because nobody's questioning how driven you are. You're just driven by different metrics, which I think is amazing. Now, I ask everybody this, and I'm very curious to get your take on it because I'm not sure what direction this could go. What is the craziest deal you've ever worked on? Or give us, give us one crazy story about a deal. Crazy story. Let's see. So I remember working on a land acquisition for a client and a few of the parcels were owned by a local farmer. That's always a good start to a story, by the way. No, it's a great start. Yeah. Well, it gets better from there. Law firm days, just so we're clear, correct? Yeah. So this is law firm days. And so my client calls me and he's like, all right, well, I think we got this figured out. We're going to get on the call with the guy tomorrow. But he's like, just so you know, I got in there and inseminated a cow today. <laughs> I was talking to him about doing the deal. And I'm listening to this and I'm thinking to myself like, you did what? I can picture both on the call tomorrow and like, we're having the conversation. I cannot get my, the thought of this guy. You know, he's like, and I was in there elbow deep, right? And so you're like, I can't get this image out of my head. You guys are having this conversation. We're memorializing all of this. And 
we're talking through it. And I just, for me, it was like one of those great like times, like if you could freeze it, where it wasn't about the transaction, it was only about the people. And, you know, I was sharing my stories of going to my, my dad's little farm, chicken coops, whatever, in Greece, donkeys and stuff. And we're all like talking about this and everyone's sharing like stories and talking about being farmers or farming experience. And at the end of the day, it was so easy to get to the end because we just were focusing on being people who were just relating to each other. But at the time, getting a call and I'm like, is he on the phone and did he wash his arm? Like, you know what I mean? Like, the entire, like that's all I could think of. I was so like wrapped up in this. But that was one of those. So wait, just so we're clear, you did get to yeah. do yeah, for sure. Oh, perfect. Virtual. Everything got done, right? Yeah, everything got done. But the one story I will say, it was not a funny story, but it was a big like wake-up call for me to get my stuff together. Was my dad, it was a, dabbled in a little bit of real estate, owning a small shopping center. And we're having conversations. And he's like, yeah, and I just signed a lease with a new dry cleaner. And I'm like, well, where'd you get the lease from? He's like, oh... You know, George Cole, Walgreens, George Cole legal forms. <laughs> Your daughter's an attorney. I kind of like drafted that for you. But instead, apparently you didn't have enough confidence that you went and bought a farm template from Walgreens. So that was like one moment where I sat back and said, geez, I really have not done a very good job proving myself quite yet as a real estate expert that my own father didn't hire me for free. Were you at the law firm when you did this? Sure was. So you're not in law school. Like you're a practicing real estate. I am a practicing real estate attorney, and my father <laughs> did not quite feel it necessary to come to me and ask me for. Well, it's all coming full circle to me now, right? Because you said that the oldest is always constantly trying to impress their parents. And That's right. You continue to make these unbelievable strides in your career and do all these wonderful things, and. You just haven't quite got there with your dad yet. <laughs> Clearly, I've not done that great of a job, right? He's paying like 10 bucks. Oh, that's awesome. That could have been the craziest deal story too, the one you didn't get to work on. I know. So, and maybe you're not the right person to ask because clearly you haven't even gotten to a point where you've impressed your dad yet. But no, what, in, in all seriousness, what advice do you have for somebody who's less than five years in the business or just getting started to kind of get their big break job? And I'd like to ask what people's big break job was. I mean, you've had several, clearly, by RPAI. To me, it feels like it's the RPAI transition from legal to being truly in the real estate business on the leasing side. I don't know if that's a fair assumption. But really, the real root of the question is, what advice do you have for, for those people that are newer in the business or trying to get into the business? Yeah. So again, I would say have... It goes back to this have a longer-term passion plan for what you want to do. and. Don't worry about getting rejection letter after rejection letter. When I first applied for my first legal job out of law school, I had a stack of like 60, 70 rejection letters from like every big firm that I sent my resume to, non-solicited or even tried to, to make connections and work it through that angle. And I took a lot of pride in accumulating those letters and saved them for a very long time, right? I reminds me of Brian Finnegan when he was on, said he used to play a game with how many no's he could get a day. Yeah, right? I literally had that stack saved for a very long time. And there was the sense of that no is just one more person I can say 
how about them apples too down the road, right? And it was not something that turned me away from it. It was something that actually inspired me. So I would say, don't worry about the no's. Don't worry about the doors that are closed. There will be one that opens, but you have to open it. You can't wait to have a perfect, you know, served up on a silver platter, right? You have to go out there and you have to work hard. You have to knock on doors. You have to be your own best self-advocate. Because at the end of the day, who's to differentiate you from anybody else? So if you don't know what somebody, pick up the phone and talk to them. Call them first. Create those relationships. Get out, go to conferences that are in your area. Even if you're just walking the floor, right? And just strike up those conversations. You never know who you're going to meet and you never know where you're going to meet them. And so I think the importance of social interaction and creating relationships and creating networking you know, throughout the industry, reach out to people. You'd be surprised at how many call back and also get comfortable with being uncomfortable. I mean, I know it's a reoccurring theme, but I just can't stress it enough. That job description might not be exactly what your skill set is, right? Or you may not have the exact background that they're looking for. But that phone call, that interview, whatever it is, there might be something that they're drawn to that makes them say, you know what? It's okay. It's okay that they don't have that perfect, you know, check every box because I really like them or I connected with them over our alma mater, whatever it is. But keep on pushing and keep on trying to get that door open because it's not just going to open sesame on its own. And when people offer up mentoring, take it. I've seen a lot of students where I'm either asked to go to a real estate fraternity, for example, and present and talk to them about, you know, just career path and that sort of thing. And every time I say, listen, I'm accessible on LinkedIn, ping me, send me a message. It may take some time to to respond just because I, you know, I don't check it daily. Or, you know, I'll hand out my business card. And I am surprised out of a hundred people, maybe two students, three students will follow up. Blows my mind. I get the same I get feedback with the speaking stuff that I do. It blows my mind every time. But it's good though, because when I remember being younger, and I'm sure you were the same way when you were, like we were those two out of a hundred people that would send those messages and look with the Rolodex that we've been able to both you and myself, but certainly more so you've been able to put together over the course of your career as a result of it. So fantastic advice. You seem like a reader. You referenced grit earlier by Angela Duckworth, who actually was recently a guest speaker via Zoom, of course, because this crazy COVID stuff uh, for a nonprofit that I'm involved with. But so I was going to ask you, what's one book that's sort of changed your life for lack of a, you know, not to oversell it or anything, but what's the best book that you would recommend out there? I would say that's an excellent example. I think that book, at least for me, one helped validate a lot of what I had already been through. So my oldest daughter, she just turned 15, like two, not even two weeks ago. And she has had six surgeries already. She's had five knee surgeries. She had a meniscus transplant in January. And she has eight hours, had a heart procedure done. And she, to me, embodies everything about what Grit discusses in the book. She, in spite of her surgeries, was able to get on the volleyball team her freshman year. She is trying to get back to volleyball her sophomore year. She has not that left that span between her and getting on, you know, Dean's list. And I cannot say enough about how I feel like she has 
a perfect embodiment of that. And I think seeing kind of validation through by reading that and knowing that hopefully we're on the right path with raising our kids. It's just to me very important to ensure that we're teaching them those lessons that we learned because we had to. My kids are very fortunate that they don't have to learn those lessons. They could pretty much get whatever Xbox, new game, whatever it is that they want that they ask for, right? But my husband and I have really seen the importance of the lessons that we learned growing up and trying to provide those same lessons for our children. So you can't quit. You can't quit a sport. We paid for it for the season, right? You committed to your teammates. You can't quit halfway. That's a hard, hard rule in our house. And those are the types of lessons that I feel like it just helped also as a parent, not just for my business life, but also my personal life to make sure that we're on the right path, hopefully for success for them. And success isn't measured by how much you're making, what title you have. It's are you living an authentic life? And are you contributing all that you can and to your fullest potential? Perfect segue because it sounds like you've set yourself up to where you're going to have a phenomenal legacy with your kids when, when they're older and probably appreciate it a little bit more like you have had with your family and upbringing. I want to stay on the, the legacy theme, but I do want to pivot back to your career. Many, many years from now, you are no longer going to be doing this, whether if that's retirement or whatever. You can't, it's inevitable. You will stop. You will no longer be in retail real estate at some point. But you've had already such an impact on the business. And I have no doubt in my mind that you'll continue to have a tremendous impact on the business to a point where when you do leave the business for whatever reason, ICSC is going to write this short blurb that you get every Friday and they're going to say, Maria is no longer around. She's retired after an 80-year career with Ulta. And they're going to write this short blurb. What do you want your legacy to be like for people that are talking about you whenever that day does come? It's something that not necessarily thought of, gosh, when I've been in the business for 80 years. But who knows, right? And first and foremost, I want them to think of me as a good person, right? I think that is to me first and above everything else. Was I a good colleague? Was I a good mentor, leader, manager? Was I a good adversary on a deal? And by that, I measure it with, was I authentic? Did I do everything with integrity? Did I do everything with 100% effort and give it my best? Was I true to my word, etc.? And to me, that... Again, I said it before and I... It is something as and you hit on it earlier. That is my personal goal, but and my personal beliefs in terms of how I measure success. Sure. But that first and foremost is what I would want the focus of that to be, right? So it's less about what title did I end up getting, what company was I with, what whatever it is. It's more about did I live an authentic self, my authentic self in both my work and my personal life. And then I love the success. I love what I've been able to accomplish. But like my real legacy are my kids. So for me, it's did I set them up for success? So part of it is like that's just one part of what I would look back and say, did I really leave a great legacy? Ask me what my kids are doing 80 years from now instead, right? (laughs) And how their kids' kids are and 
how happy and fulfilled they feel in their lives, regardless of whatever the career they go into and however much they're making, whatever title they have. Are they fulfilled and do they feel happy? And are they contributing to society? Right? I mean, that is something that we spend a lot of time with. And I spend a lot of time with both my husband and I balancing work and home. We do focus a lot on are we volunteering? Are we contributing something beyond just work and home? And I really focus with my children. You have to be a citizen that cares. You have to contribute something back. You have to care. You have to be part of your community. Whatever community it is, you need to contribute back. And so that's really important for us as well. Unbelievably well-rounded, incredibly successful, really just so much going on in your career that you have so much to be proud of, different aspects, you know, being at the core of the law firm, core within a, a real estate holding company, now with a retailer. I think there's so many different draws to why people are going to really enjoy this episode. And I speak on behalf of everybody who will listen. We cannot thank you enough. Your words were incredibly profound. It's been... And as always, we were obviously friends outside of this, but can't tell you how much I appreciate you sharing your story because I think it's inspirational. It was great advice. And there was something that almost anybody could take something with from this time that we spent together and run with it. So... On behalf of everybody who listens to this, thank you so much. We really appreciate it, Maria. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And I'm going to leave it out there like I do every time I have the opportunity, right? If anybody ever wants to reach out to me for mentoring questions about their careers, right? I'm easy to find on LinkedIn. So please reach out. We'll have to check back a year from now and see how many. Yeah, for sure. And I would challenge anybody who's listening to this to email me as well. And I can get you in touch with Maria in some way, shape or form. And for whatever reason, you can't find her. Although her last name is certainly, we'll go with Unique. And she's, again, with Ulta, so you guys should be able to find her pretty easily. But for whatever reason, you can't or want to go through me to make that happen. I'm happy to take you up on your offer on behalf of all the listeners out there. She's genuine, guys. She really means it. We met in an Uber one time. (laughs) I'm going to an event, so you're fine. Maria, thank you again. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Limitless, How to Crush It in Commercial Real Estate. I hope you were able to extract one piece of value out of today's episode. That's my only goal. If you did, in fact, get some value out of it, let me know via LinkedIn, Instagram, or through a review wherever you get your podcasts. 